welcome to the Education Innovators Podcast. I'm Eric Byron, and it's an honor to host this show where we get to hear from talented educators who are willing to share their stories of the incredible things they are doing in learning environments all over the world. Through the use of technology, actually we can transform the pedagogy, we can transform the curriculum, and we can change the learning and teaching experiences. Rachel Chan is a champion for EdTech and the best kind of troublemaker. This is part one of my conversation with Rachel as she shares her personal journey, a lifelong pursuit of education, entrepreneurship, and learning while stirring up trouble all along the way. In part two, we'll talk about the nonprofit organization she leads that is promoting EdTech companies and initiatives throughout Southeast Asia. Today, my guest on the show is Rachel Chan. Rachel has extensive experience working in and with public, private, and NGO sectors. In 2007, she founded InnoFoco to propel the development of strategic design and innovation in Hong Kong. Recently, she was working on the Hong Kong Design Center's Unleash program that seeks to broaden and deepen the application of design thinking across different sectors in Hong Kong. In addition to her consulting work, Rachel teaches an undergraduate course on values-driven innovation at the University of Hong Kong. Rachel works with a number of NGOs, especially in youth education and development. Her latest venture is Esperanza a nonprofit organization that aspires to make Hong Kong a better place to live, learn, and work through cross-sector, multidisciplinary, cross-border, and intergenerational collaborations. Wow. That's a, you got a lot of stuff going on, Rachel. <laughs> a lot of big words. <laughs> it's a lot of big words, but important stuff. And, you know, I've known you, uh, I don't know, at least five years, I guess, certainly pre-COVID, well, I think I first met you through Esperanza and some of the events there, but we've certainly crossed paths at a number of EdTech events and activities here in Hong Kong. So thank you very much for being on the show. I, I welcome you. Well, let's d dig in a little bit. I, I uh, Actually, this is going to be um, a bit more freeform. I, I'm not sure where this conversation is going to go today. Um, we're going to keep it kind of casual and conversational and uh, get to know you a little bit. So that's kind of priority one is who is Rachel Chan and uh, <laughs> what are you about? And uh, you know how did you come to do all of these things? Um, but then I want to have a more general conversation kind of about the you know education sector here and where things are going, who do you know, what's going on. Um, you're very connected. So I want, I'm going to pick your brain about some of those connections and uh, who are really having an impact in the community here. First of all, you do a lot of different things um, and you uh, you gave yourself the title of Catalyst at InnoFoco, but I'm having trouble trying to figure out exactly what that means and how that really represents what you do. So I'm going to ask you, it this way. Um, Rachel, what is your superpower? Oh, <laughs> uh, very, very honestly, I think I'm the type of people who are not content with the status quo. I see myself really as a change agent wherever I go. And this has caused me 
and people around me a lot of troubles. <laughs> so you're a troublemaker. That's your superpower. Definitely. My superpower is being a troublemaker. Okay. <laughs> um, I still remember one of my former bosses uh, that was like 20 years ago. He said, Rachel, I don't understand. Why do you ask questions? Often ask me questions. Just get on with it. Do whatever I ask you to do. <laughs> uh, no, this is, this is great. I, I love it. Well, and this is why I do the podcast, actually, right? Because I guess, really, I'm looking for troublemakers, right? I'm looking for people who challenge things and say, why? Why do we do it this way? Why can't we do it a different way? And uh, and that's definitely, I, I see that. This is part of your personality. You challenge things. and yeah. But the weird thing about me is, I think in the first 25 years of my life, I was a really conventional, traditional girl brought up in the local school system. Academically, no doubt, I was an achiever. I got many, many A's in my school, <laughs> sir, Good in the old days. And I grew up you know, in Catholic girls' schools, with very strict discipline. And then when I move on to high school, I studied in a school which was famous at that time or infamous for being outrageously strict with their girls. <laughs> okay. And I also grew up in a family kind of surrounded by teachers as well. My mother, she before we were born, she had a brief period uh, as a teacher. And then all my cousins, uh, they were much older than me at that time. Most of them and their girlfriends and boyfriends <laughs> were all teachers. So somehow I grew up with this natural I don't know whether it's aspiration or fantasy that I would one day be a teacher. You know, okay. you know how kids yeah, were yeah. like those things. Oh, what would you like to do when you grow up, right? So I always say I want to be a teacher. And so my kind of history and trajectory in the first 20 years actually paved me a very good foundation, uh, leading me to a teaching career. But of course, in the end, being also brought up in Hong Kong, there were, even in my days, more prestigious jobs than being a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when I was in my uni, frankly, none of my classmates around me aspired to be a teacher. At that time, the most kind of sought after jobs were two categories. One, a job in the government, uh, in the administrative service. The second, being a management trainee with the big homes or big corporations, like the banks or those big trading house in the latter late part of the 20th century. Um, in the end, I did not manage to get myself through the management training route with these private companies. Uh, but I did find myself a job in the government. And again, you would have thought that, you know, as a civil servant, 
should have been a very rule-abiding woman <laughs> and troublemaking and being a civil servant don't not seem very compatible to... no yeah. not at all <laughs> but i think the change actually i have to thank the hong kong government at that time uh, in the good old days we had this tradition of being sent to oxford for one year overseas training wow i think during that one year I started to really have a kind of better understanding of myself and my innate interests or my actually the dark side of me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when I came back from Oxford, I didn't stay very long in Hong Kong. I immediately asked for a transfer to an overseas office. So I got an overseas posting to Brussels, followed by another posting in London. After these two overseas postings, I came back to Hong Kong and I realized that probably uh, the civil service career might not be my destiny. So I switched jobs and I joined the Hong Kong Trade Development Council. And then after three years, I told myself that maybe the Trade Development Council and the Hong Kong government are quite similar in terms of uh, the work culture and the way they work. So in the end, I decided to give myself a break. (laughs) Um, I left Hong Kong and I went to London to study for one year. And then I came back fully realizing at that time that I couldn't work for big organizations anymore. Sorry, what did you study in that year? uh, It's a master's program. It's a kind of like um, MBA, but for more senior people. It's a Sloan Fellowship program. Mm. Yeah. And I had this very deep realization. Actually, one of my biggest takeaway during that year was I really got to understand who I am, why sometimes I behave in such a way that looks so weird to other people. In the end, I really realized that I'm not weird. I'm just one of the very few people in the world that probably quite creative. Not in the sense of being creative as an artist or a designer. But in the way I like to mix and match ideas, connect people from very different backgrounds and push the envelopes and try to do things that have never been done before. Mm. And I, when I came back to Hong Kong after my London study, obviously I couldn't find a job and actually I didn't want to find a job. And so I started my consulting life since then. Okay. And my first foray, imagine that was 2010. I was one of the very early advocates of entrepreneurship in Hong Kong. Somehow, I don't know why, I just feel that, well, I think if we here in Hong Kong, had to have some new growth momentum we need to encourage entrepreneurship so i at that time i 
organized a new program with an NGO uh, called MAD, M-A-D, <laughs> standing for Make a Difference. Oh, so great. we okay. we invited young entrepreneurs, particularly at that time, we call them social entrepreneurs that are doing good and doing well with solutions that can address some acute social problems to Hong Kong and took part in a competition. And I still remember, you know, I'm sure you know, running this kind of competition, we need to get funding, uh, get a lot of sponsorship support. And I was really crazy. I still remember vividly. We promised to give away 300,000 Hong Kong dollars as the cash prize for the award grand awardee. Two weeks before that event, I was still unable to find that amount of money. <laughs> <laughs> so in trouble, the end, trouble, trouble, Rachel. Oh, trouble. In the end, I was very lucky through an old colleague in the government. She connected me with someone in the business world. And over 30 minutes, kind of like breakfast at the jockey club, I got that check. Wow. And before, I also remember one of my very memorable experience pitching to a foundation that was half past 12. No, no, half past two after lunch. I did my presentation and halfway through my presentation, I realized that that gentleman in front of me, he has fallen to sleep. And I was kind of really puzzled. You know, I may not be the best communicator in the world, but I don't see myself as a boring person. No, I'll <laughs> agree with that. You are not. Anything but and boring. Yeah. I finished my page and then he woke up. And his first question to me was, I don't understand. Why should I give you money to support entrepreneurs? They are business people. They should be able to find money themselves. I rather give my money to the poor children in Africa. And then I told him, actually, we are grooming fishermen to catch more fish instead of giving bread to your poor children in Africa. And of yeah. course, he was convinced and brushed me aside and we say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, these anecdotes just told me how crazy I was and how difficult it was to be first movers in doing anything. And of course, everybody knows that entrepreneurship in Hong Kong probably has finally taken off in the last 10 years. We have more startup, we have more investor. Uh, and finally, we, we now, I think we have an ecosystem. Although uh, there's still a lot of room for us to grow our ecosystem, but I think we managed to achieve a lot in the last 20 years, or maybe 15 years, since my first pitch to this foundation. <laughs> well, thank you for being a trailblazer, because I will say, you know, I benefited from it too, right? I I came to Hong Kong in, in 2012, and, you know, it was clearly a very fledgling entrepreneur community here. It was still hard to raise money and 
Yeah. And, and I was looking at it from the game industry side, right? Mm-hmm. I, I was hoping to get a job with it uh, in the video game industry here in Hong Kong when I came. And, uh, and yeah, it, it was very, very difficult. So yes, I ended up in a more corporate kind of role with a company in China. Mm-hmm. And then later, five years later, ended up finally with a startup with my own ed tech mm-hmm. startup. But mm-hmm. by then things were, you know, much better <laughs> um, thanks to the yeah. efforts of folks like you really helping to build that culture and support and uh, framework network for, for all the startups. So yes, thank you for and being then, a trailblazer. After entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, my second attempt that was in probably 2013, like again, 10 years ago, mm. I started to advocate business sustainability Nowadays, people refer it to creating share value or doing good and doing well. Essentially, I started to see the need for business, not just to profit, you know, maximize their profit, but also in creating new value by addressing some critical social issues. And I didn't see it as CSR. It's not about making donations or doing volunteer work, picking rubbish from the beach or planting trees, nothing like that. But my belief at that time, 10 years ago, was increasingly, I I have to say, I was inspired by one of the gurus when I was in London. He said, nowadays, government have to behave more like business and business have to behave more like government. That's the future. So I think I was influenced by his thinking. And what, what does that really mean, though? What it means is government has to be more agile. Okay. It's to be more market-oriented, whereas businesses should also take into account public interest, social considerations in conducting their businesses. And you can see this whole movement about ESG. Yeah. And there's a little bit about this kind of thing. And of course, uh, you have people like Larry Fink. Uh, you have World Economic Forum. Everybody started to talk about the social purpose, the purpose of business, the values of business. And that led me to teach, you know, a course at Hong Kong U eight years ago on values-driven innovation. How the values of a company can be its moral, not just be its moral compass, but also a way to inspire the company to identify new opportunities by addressing the real needs of a society. And by these, you know, you can say stuff like, learning or education more broadly, health care, elderly care, mental health, of course, environmental issues. These are all areas that could potentially be business opportunities. And especially after COVID, 
one of my, you know, very, very convincing argument is, I think after COVID, people are now looking for more in life than simply material comfort. Right. Uh, you look at, you know, I'm not going to generalize, but but more young, you know, younger people especially, uh, they really want to work with companies that have a real purpose instead of just making insane amount of money. Yeah. Oh, you bring up so many good points in there. And and of course it resonates with me too, because in my education startup, this was part of how we fundraised, right? Was by saying, you know, we we are for profit, we're not an NGO, but we're a social enterprise, right? We are serving the community by making um, this training. We were a you know coding boot camp and by making it accessible to people who normally wouldn't be able to afford um, to do this, yeah. right? Can't just quit yeah. their job and change careers yeah, yeah. and spend thousands yeah. of dollars on training. Yeah, yeah. And so we were doing deferred tuition um, to try and make it accessible and uh, it was a great model and it worked and um, we both made money and were able to fundraise uh, on the premise of it being socially um, conscious, uh, serving the community. Now you get me into something that I feel so strongly about. I just have to say something if I'm allowed to. <laughs> this is your time, please. You know, life for education startup or ag tech startup in general is so difficult because we are caught between two spectrum. On the one hand, people see us as for-profit making businesses. Mm -hmm. So the foundations and the charity people of the world, as I said, they do not see any reason why they should give funding to us. But on the other hand, the, the VC, the angel investors of this world, people who are looking for really quick return with very high multiples, they look at us and say, what, you're doing education? How much money you're making? What is your return on investment? When do I expect to have my return? Right, when what are you gonna be a unicorn, right? And yes, when are you going to be a unicorn? Of course, we put off these people at the same time because we're not delivering the kind of usual financial return that these investors expect. But at the same time, we're not the favorite of the foundations of this world because simply of the fact that we are for profit. Yep. And this is why uh, increasingly, we really need to, I don't like this word educate, but we really need to enhance the awareness of people who are looking for a greater impact on their capital to look into supporting education and particular ag tech businesses. Because if they are really good, they are scalable. And right. The impact of EdTech can actually move the needle a lot. Now, for me, you know, my that's maybe I should say that's my third foray after entrepreneurship, after 
creating share value. Now I spend a lot of my time in promoting education technology. The reason why is because I really believe that technology is a backdoor way to innovate a very outdated education system. It's very, very difficult to change education policies, but through the use of technology, actually we can transform the pedagogy, we can transform the curriculum, and we can change the learning and teaching experiences. Amen to that. I'm a follower. I'm, I'm a believer in, in exactly all of that. And that's why I'm doing this podcast. We want to get these stories out and tell people that you can adopt technology and you can innovate and things can change. And there's there's examples of it. Technology yeah. is just a means to an end. The end goal is not technology. The end goal is a more effective, engaging learning experience that is yep. relevant to the learner. But we like to see technology actually just as an enabler or, or a catalyst. <laughs> My favorite word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good word. It, it It's befitting uh, the, the situation. Yes. I, I yeah, agree. you know, yeah. um, there's a theory that I always like to quote. Uh, there's an, I think he's an economist, or maybe I'm wrong, John Kay. Uh, he has an oblique theory. Basically, what he argues is if you have to tackle very complicated problems that involve multi-stakeholder, you need to do it in a roundabout way. If you want to go to A, never go straight direct to A. Go through B and C. And I see technology as the BNC to tackle education reform. Yeah, there's an analogy I learned somewhere along the way. The example was sailing. Mm. You can't sail headlong into the wind. Yes. You have to yeah, tack, yeah. as they call it, right? Yeah. So you go a little bit yeah, right, yeah. you go a little bit left, and you kind of zigzag, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, to get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's exactly what yeah, you're talking yeah. about, that oblique angle, right? I can't go directly yeah. at the target. I have to be yeah. willing. And, and so you talked earlier also about agility. This is uh, this yeah. analogy comes up a lot in, well, and in teaching entrepreneurship, right? That pivot. Sometimes yeah. you know you want to get to that end state, that um, unicorn thing, but you've got to be willing to go a little bit sideways sometimes to get around a problem because you can't go directly through it. <laughs> and so, uh, yes, these are wonderful concepts and principles that we need to help the ed tech startups with. Uh, they've got to tack sometimes. Yeah. And the schools too, right? The, the schools and, yeah. and the consumers of that ed tech, right, have to have the same mindset that, yeah, sometimes it's not the perfect solution, but it moves me forward, right? I can go a little yeah. bit forward here and then I can go a little bit forward there and I'm going yeah. forward as yeah. opposed to the fear, which um, has embraced so much of our public education, the the fear. And instead of tack, they, they stay put yeah. and they say, oh, it doesn't, it's not the perfect solution. So I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. problems yeah. with it. So I'm just going to avoid that when they should be more agile, more willing to take some risk and say, yeah, it's not perfect, but I'm going to learn from attempting this. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm going to apply that learning to the next attempt. And each attempt gets me a little further along. 
And one of the good things about technology is the cause of failure can be really low or close to nothing. Rachel Chan is a creative spirit, never afraid to challenge the norms and try new approaches. As she says, her superpower is her ability to make trouble and question everything. She's an amazing advocate for education and ed tech, and I know you are going to enjoy the second part of our conversation as we hear about the upcoming ed tech month activities and the work she's doing to promote ed tech throughout the region. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and share. We have a lineup of awesome guests with amazing stories of innovation and education that you don't want to miss. Please reach out if you have comments or suggestions, or you just want to stir up some trouble. I'm Eric Byron. Thanks for listening. And thanks to all those education innovators out there. You are making a difference.